Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. In this episode, I talked to University of Minnesota professor and editor-in-chief of the Society Pages, Douglas Hartman, about his book, Midnight Basketball, Race, Sports, and Neoliberal Social Policy. This conversation focuses on a 1990s crime initiative known as Midnight Basketball, which aimed to curb crime by setting up late-night basketball leagues in their cities. While initially popular with Democrats and Republicans, including President George H.W. Bush, the program would eventually fail, being attacked by right-wing politicians and radio hosts alike. But it left behind a complex history with many implications for sports, race, and social policy today. Professor Hartman, welcome to Office Hours. Pleasure to be here. So, one of the big questions I had as I was thinking through it and trying to think about how I related to the, the themes and such was the through the lens of basketball, right? So I was wondering what you thought about like how much of this story, the story of this book, is is a basketball story, and how much can we see like midnight basketball, the legacy of this social program, in how we talk about the sport today? Yeah, how much is a bas- about basketball? That's a good question. Uh, in a way, one of the tricky things about the sociology of sport is it's often way less about sports per se than sports fans think it would be or should be. Um, Like a lot of sociology, um, studying sport, from a sociological point of view, I'm also often most interested in all the things around sport, behind sport, that's going through sports. So for Midnight Basketball, it is about basketball. I mean, it's very much about a basketball league. Um, But it's about basketball leagues that were created to do things that weren't about playing basketball. It was about crime control about risk prevention, about social intervention. So even there, right away, the people that first created these leagues were doing it not to put on a basketball league, but to achieve other social ends. Um, So in a way, um, it's a little bit of a bait and switch. It looks to be about sports, uh, but it really is trying to achieve other ends. In fact, George Bush, the first President Bush, when he um, had press conferences, um, champion in a basketball, he often used the line, this program is about anything but basketball. Even though he was famous for going to the thing and, you know, he'd shoot some shots and um, dribble around and play with the guys a little bit. So sports, but that really wasn't the main focus of it. So that's, that's kind of the theme that I, that you pick, that I pick up in studying that is, is all the things around basketball. And then as a sociologist, like, where'd this idea come from in the first place? It's not because, it's partly because we think sports is great, but it's partly a, a larger historical context of what was happening with social policy at the time. How we were having all these cutbacks in the inner cities of all the other programs that were serving young black men. Um, and really all that was left was a basketball kind of program like uh, midnight basketball. That's not about sports per se. It's about a lot of other things. Um, and and then for me, you know, in the middle of the book, um, it's about how this basketball program came to symbolize, um, serve as a racial code for both Democrats and Republicans, and then serve as a larger a larger kind of symbolic role with respect to neoliberal social policy generally. All those things aren't about basketball per se, but it's about the place that basketball plays in the culture, 
in the media, um, in the political context. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's not, it's a book about basketball, but it's really about all the apparatus, all the politics, all the history that surrounds this like little narrow idiosyncratic basketball program. I do think that these, that this program played directly off of racial stereotypes about basketball, about sports and about black men. Uh, but I, I think to the extent it's about basketball, it's about how it plays off of the American imagination, about how we imagine African-American men as being both great athletes and criminal threats. And so it's kind of that NBA superstar is one set of images that we have in our imagination that are all, it's all about basketball. This is very black. The sports thought is very black. And what Midnight Basketball did with respect to that image of blackness and basketball on the one hand, and then African-Americans as criminal threats on the other, is it kind of combined those two and made the combination of our racial stereotypes about sports and crime and turned that into a solution. So it kind of takes the more glorified stereotypes about sports and race and makes them the solution to the perceived problems and threats about black men and crime. So it's so that's kind of like a it's not about basketball per se, but it is about how basketball functions and sports functions in our imagination um, about about uh, black men um, that makes this program kind of interesting and important in the first place. What's interesting to me is the fact that I'd never really heard of this program before. Mm -hmm. um, and when I saw the, the title of the book, I was like, oh, this could be about, you know, people who play basketball like late at night, right? Like late night rec programs. And I Googled it and I came up with a wiki page. And I was like, there's a wiki page. And so this is clearly like a real program. So, you didn't believe me at first, huh? No, absolutely. <laughs> it's like, and honestly, one of the big things I expected from this book was something about you playing basketball, like, <laughs> like just at midnight in various like parks and stuff. And so by the time I finished it, I was like, wow, you never played basketball in this. Day. Like I expected that. Well, I did mention at one point in the, I mean, I, I had to shoot some free throws once in a while, show my white guy cred, right. uh, but mostly my basketball skills delegitimated me in the court. So I had to find other guys to help do that field work. But. Right. I just figured there was going to be like, you know, you dunking on a little more. Yeah. You know, midnight Chicago, you know, basketball games. So like the latter part of this question is, has midnight basketball, the program sort of made its way into discourse about sports today much? Or how we talk about basketball. Yeah. Like I don't think it's impacted like basketball per se, like NBA basketball or collegiate basketball. Um, I do try to situate midnight basketball relative to like midnight madness, the marketing of NCAA sports um, and things like that. Where I, um, but, but in terms of kind of elite level, um, high level basketball performance, this is kind of more of a grassroots phenomenon, more of an idiosyncratic public policy, maybe about recreational sports or, or inner city opportunities. Um, but I, will, I do want to be clear, though, that Midnight Basketball in the 90s really did have a big impact um, in terms of how youth sports and um, sports in the inner city were thought about and funded. Because um, it's, it's what in the book I, I, I borrow from uh, David Andrews and Robert Pitter. They talk about the social problems industry and youth sports provision. Um, because what happened is after the 70s and 80s, after you started having all these cutbacks in public funding and facilities all over the country for 
all kinds of things, including parks and recs and per- urban programs. Um, it became harder and harder to fund youth sports programs in inner cities. So what started to happen was as funding for parks and sports programs went away, operators had to get creative. So they started to reinvent these programs, um, not to provide sports or recreation opportunities, but as social programs to prevent crime, to uh, allow uh, deal with risk prevention in the city, to do gr- gang gang violence prevention. Um, so you still had so you had a lot of people who were running sports based programs, but now looking for other ways to support them and find funding for them. And midnight basketball, that's what midnight basketball grew out of. And midnight basketball in the 90s emerged as one of the leading programs in that sense because it got so much publicity um, so that, like Pitter and Andrews say, that it was the model program for a whole wave, a whole generation of how youth sports programs in the cities have now been funded is on this kind of midnight basketball model which is it's a sports program, but it's not funded through parks and recreations. It's not funded through sports itself. It's funded through criminal justice programs or family planning programs or any kind of other social services. So in that sense, Midnight Basketball did have huge impacts in the 90s and kind of bringing in this new wave, this new way of funding programs, of doing programs. And that to me is like a neoliberal intervention. I mean, that's part of the outcome of neoliberalism, the cutbacks of other kind of programs and funding. The other thing I should say, though, is that in the mid-90s, when everybody started hating on midnight basketball so much, it also affected those programs so that they became um, a lot more cautious about who they try to serve and help and how they did it. So especially youth-based programs targeted younger kids. Um, so Midnight Basketball targeted 17 to 24-year-old African-American men. After the 90s controversies, most of these programs started to be high school and younger. Um, they started to broaden. So it wasn't just basketball. You started to get variations that have remnants of the Midnight Basketball idea. So they not that late at night, but earlier using other sports, maybe a little less about crime prevention and a little more about social intervention. Um, helping girls as well as boys, um, and and uh, using a lot of other sports, you start to see those kind of reshape themselves um, in the United States and actually then all over the world. So you have a whole emergence around the globe of using sports for um, assimilation, integration, resocialization of all different groups of. Um, racial, ethnic, religious minority populations in a lot of cities all over the all over the world. So that's where midnight basketball it didn't it didn't change how I think about the NBA, but it did change and kind of led a wave of of um, a cyclical wave of reforms about how youth sports was done, especially youth sports targeted to um, to minority kids and inner city kids. Over the course of reading this book, I had a, I had a little bit of a tough time with my feelings on the program. Like, at times, I felt like I was almost rooting for it. I was like, yeah, like, come on, let's go midnight basketball. And then when you, you have this big section on, like, Republican lawmakers who are saying, you know, this is terrible, this is stupid, like, you really think you're going to fix all these programs with people playing basketball? And, like, when I was reading that, I was just like, yeah, maybe it's kind of naive and stupid. Um, but the book never really answers whether this was, like, a good program so-called or whether it was like yeah that was stupid that was a stupid program um so i was wondering what what you thought about that because a lot of times and i thought this was a common theme is like well the research 
uh, the people who started the program was saying like, oh, this is a great program. It cut crime by like 30% or, or, or higher. Um, and then you say, well, that research is actually kind of messed up and has right. a lot of problems. And then there didn't seem to be other research to really verify whether it was actually good or not. So I was wondering what your thoughts are on that theme and on the program itself. Like, was this a good program? Well, I got a lot to say about that. Um, but I, I guess the first thing I'd say is I'm kind of um, pleased that it's not clear to you that it, I think it's good or bad. Because right. uh, I kind of feel like that is where I try not to be an advocate, but an analyst. And I'm trying to be even-handed and multidimensional in terms of things I think that were successful, things I think were deeply problematic. And 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 it's really, like to me, Midnight Basketball is like this kind of prism or court that has all these different angles, all these different ways you can see it. Um, and so in a certain sense to me, it's using that prism or lens of Midnight Basketball to see kind of the positives and problems of a whole range of social intervention programs that came out of the 90s. But I get your question. Um, I think, so I do think from the very beginning, the effectiveness of Midnight Basketball as a crime prevention program was vastly overstated. Not because it couldn't work, but because these programs were a lot smaller and um, they, they served less people, less time of the year than you could, than, than they were made out to. I mean, the biggest programs in Chicago served like 150 guys um, in 12 weeks a year. And they're, thinking this is, you know, in a city of millions, housing projects that served hundreds of thousands of guys. So I think it was crazy to say that they're going to impact crime in any big, huge way. It's not to say the program didn't really help the guys who were in it or that it couldn't help them, but it's it just that we kind of over, we expected so much from those programs. And that to me is about the larger politics that surround it, how these programs got mobilized to serve both the Democrat and Republican agendas that really weren't connected to who they were trying to serve and help. Um, A lot of times people ask me the kind of question you just ask um, these days because it's about, well, can sports programs do a good job of helping kids in cities? I usually, my answer on that is usually they can, but it's a lot more expensive and complicated than people think. And usually, the problem is usually people want to use sports programs to do good things because they think it's cheap because they think it's easy um, and, and they think it's going to be uh, a, 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 and, and kind of a Band-Aid on a lot of larger problems. Um, but the reality is um, sports programs are, are, can be really good for recruitment, for getting kids into programs or young men into programs and retaining them. But th- when programs work the best for really dealing with social problems, it's when they are working with a whole range of other interventions, resources, organizations, and supports. So the midnight basketball programs or any sports programs that I'm the most positive about are ones where sport is just a hook for kids and young people and a bridge to lots of other resources, lots of other programs and agencies, and not a band-aid on that. And the problem is most of the time sports programs are all that we offer rather than the starting point for a much larger set of programs. So in that sense, I get skeptical about how sports programs can get kind of used and abused because it both overestimates how sports going to change the world and it underestimates the depth of social problems in a lot of the communities that we are trying to put these programs into. The one other thing I want to say about that, though, why I'm profoundly ambivalent and often very critical of Midnight Basketball in the book 
is about the larger symbolic politics that surrounded midnight basketball. Um, especially I'm thinking here how early in the Bush administration and then during the 1994 crime bill debates after Clinton took up the call, um, these programs were they were little, they were idiosyncratic, but they got used to kind of send these larger symbolic messages. Um, on the one hand, they sent a very unfortunate coded message um, across political lines that the problems of the inner city were the problems of black men, and it was black men's fault that we had had these problems. And basketball kind of allowed both Democrats and Republicans to talk about race, to talk about crime as a race problem and blame the black community without even owning up to the racial imagery of that was in the program. So that's, that's you, you probably saw a lot of the content analysis, how on the one hand, they never talked about race, but on the other hand, how everybody really always thought midnight basketball is about black men. So that's a racial code. And that is, to me, very, very problematic. And I could probably say a lot worse things than that about how the programs function. But then even more so, more than just kind of reproducing stereotypes about race, um, how I think Midnight Basketball programs kind of became a commercial for all of neoliberalism. Um, and, and why that's frustrating and unfortunate is because really what's happening in the 80s and 90s are the cutbacks of programs in inner cities um, and the privatization of those programs and the turning of those programs that they draw on a logic that's not only market-driven, but it's predicated on individual responsibility. Like it's the people in the communities themselves who have the problems. And um, Midnight Basketball was kind of, was not only part of that, it became like a signature program for this new way to think about crime and social policy and urban poverty. Um, it's no accident that Midnight Basketball, that George Bush loved Midnight Basketball so much because it was kind of his vision of how social policy would would proceed. Less government-based, more public-private funding, smaller programs, and programs much more based on the cultural rehabilitation of people in the cities rather than providing them structural resources against the problems of poverty and inequality and discrimination. Um, but that's why Midnight Basketball was one of the three of his signature programs of the Thousand Points of Light Foundation. It was powerful. People loved it. It sounded great. It was great publicity. But it was pu publicizing a whole approach to um, to policy that to me is is very unfortunate and, and, and really ultimately kind of not on the side of equity and justice. And just to be clear, to me, that was not just a Republican or conservative thing. Um, the Democrats in the 90s led by, um, um, by Bill Clinton, they jumped right on board to that. Um, you know, had a little bit different vision of the program. It was a little less oriented towards prisons and policing, but it was very much about social problems and prevention and the problems in the inner city. Um, and and so kind of furthered that kind of continued the the way that midnight basketball or any kind of small innovative program was supposed to solve these very massive problems that had emerged in the in the cities, not because of the culture of the people there, but because of the larger structural changes in our society that were unfolding at the time. Yeah, and in the book you talk a lot about Jack Kemp. And yeah, they give a very positive spin is what it felt like or not a spin but it wasn't actively negative like i usually expect from mm -hmm. you know sociologists no offense to our discipline um <laughs> so the last question i have is about the future of recreation and social policy and just generally what you think like the future 
will look like or has looked like since yeah. uh, midnight basketball. Well, let, let me let me say a word about Camp since you mentioned him. I mean, I think he's a really interesting figure in in the book, um, in the whole midnight basketball story. Um, somewhat accidentally, um, but but mainly because he was the house secretary for housing and urban development under under Bush. So the Bush administration's kind of support of midnight basketball came through his office. Um, he was funded the original the the program in Chicago get, that got a lot of the big media attention. Um, but Kemp's an interesting figure in this because not only is he like a conservative, compassionate conservative, this new version of of a policy like Bush, but he's a guy who came, who got famous as a football player. He was an all-star quarterback. Maybe all-star is too big. He was a pretty good quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. Um, and, and he rode that. I mean, that's, he got elected as a, as a congressman from Buffalo, kind of on his sports fame. And that was not just the fame for him, but it was also like then he, his time in the NFL, he always attributed to having kind of a better understanding of, of race and of African-American um, teammates, that his understanding of African-American teammates gave him a better understanding of the problems of the inner city, problems of African-American communities. Um, and so he kind of was one of the – champ. it wasn't accidental that he championed the programs. And then he's also a guy who um, throughout his career then always used sports metaphors to talk about politics, to campaign for the presidency. So, so – Basketball kind of symbolized a lot for him, but it was of, of a very kind of individualist, meritocratic vision of America, a uh, very capitalist, competitive kind of vision of America. Um, um, but I do, I guess why it might come off less critical than most is I, I kind of take him at his word of wanting to blend that very traditional, idealistic, economic vision of America with a real commitment to trying to do something in the inner city trying to do something about race relations and for the black community. You know, ultimately, I don't think um, Midnight Basketball or uh, other of the initiatives like Free Enterprise Zones or stuff that he really championed were ultimately proved to be successful. But I, I kind of think it's pretty important to recognize the effort and the attempt. Um, so that that would be my a little bit of my Kemp story. Um, and, and I do think it's, you know, I, I kind of think he's a good... For me, he was a good figure to tell the story through. Um, future of these programs, um, I mean, since the 90s, these uh, all kinds of youth-based programs, especially in the cities, um, they've been younger. Um, they've been targeted to younger kids. Um, less about kind of more uh, uh, problems like crime prevention or gang prevention and more about social early social intervention. Um, I think those are good ideas. Um, a good shift. Um, I think the programs that are most successful, though, are those that realize that they're not just running, a, in terms of intervention, they're not just running a program for sports, but are trying to do a much larger kind of intervention in the lives of young people. And so they require educational support. Um, they require other social services to really help folks in those in those neighborhoods and communities. So I guess what I'd say is I think the kind of a lot of time, when, when sports programs are the most effective for big social changes, it's when they're connected with a lot of other outreaches. And the f- problem is a lot of youth sports programs are becoming more and more driven by the market. So it's really hard to hang on to just publicly funded sports facilities and programs. Um, so um, given how hard that is, it's hard to expect that they're going to do a lot to change people's lives in a bigger scope. Um, but I also want to say one other thing. 
And this is where the, the book kind of ends. Um, and it also gets back to your first question about basketball. Um, a lot of times these programs were funded as anything but basketball. We didn't want to fund the programs to provide recreation and fitness, to provide sports. It was for all these other ends. But at the end of the book, I, this is where I was. A little, I felt like I was trying. I actually did make a little more of an argument. I think if there's one thing that there, it's undeniable that these six programs were successful on is providing recreational and fitness opportunities for young black men who lived in neighborhoods that didn't have a lot of public facilities and they themselves lacked resources to like buy memberships at Lifetime Fitness or other gyms. And so to me, one of the kind of ironic, unintended consequences of youth sports programs and sports programs for all young adults is that some of the things that they're the best at, which is providing opportunities for fitness and recreation for communities that don't have a lot of those facilities, that's what they do best. And that's what we as a nation are least likely to want to fund. Do you foresee the federal government ever playing a role in these kinds of programs ever again? Yeah, probably not. Um, I mean, even as much as there was, the book is based around public debates about midnight basketball in the 1990s, they never really got funded. And the United States government has always been an extreme outlier in the world in terms of not funding sports. Um, we're like still the only nation in the developed world that doesn't have a cabinet level position for sports, like Olympic level sports. Like our, you, our Olympic Foundation is a separate entity, a private non-governmental organization. Um, we have really clear lines about that that's, that go back to a whole history of not wanting to be communist, not wanting to be socialist, and, and sports figures being adamantly private and voluntary organizations. Um, and what that, what actually the result of that is we have very little public, we have very little public, um, not just public funding, but state involvement in sports programs. So that that's why the NCAA is allowed to run itself because there is no governmental oversight. Um, it's also why our professional sports leagues have gotten, um, not only been separate from the government, but the government actually has given them antitrust exemptions. So they're kind of not even corporations per se. They regulate them. You know, baseball and football are the two most famous. Um, but all of this stems from um, um, a kind of pronounced fear of overregulation and, um, and state involvement in our sporting world. Um, and it's meant, which is completely ironic in the sense that the United States is also probably one of the most sports-loving nations in the world, both in terms of participation and in terms of spectatorship, um, just how little formal involvement and even limited regulation the government has had in our sports programs. That's one of the, I think I mentioned it right at the start of the book, um, some of the guys that study sport policy and federal government intervention, um, one of the reasons they were interested in midnight basketball, they didn't care about the stuff I did about race and inner cities, but it was one of the few times that Congress actually considered federal involvement in a sports program. Um, all It's not we don't have national level sports programs, it's that we don't regulate them. We don't fund them. We don't run them through the government. We run them through separate agencies and through pr pr uh, corporations and, um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and at a state level. Very unique in the United, in the United States. I mean, in the world. The United States is very unique in the world in that respect.
Professor Hartman, thank you for the conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This week's episode of Office Hours featuring Douglas Hartman was produced and hosted by me, Matthew Aguilar-Shampoo, as part of the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. You can find more written content about the sociology of sport and other kinds of social science research at the societypages.org.